Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Buttermilk Boulevard, the podcast that discusses discographies of your favorite bands and the artists behind them. I'm your host James and today we are going to discuss the discography of the band Metallica. <laughs> Let's get some admin out of the way. As always, leave a like, follow the podcast for more content in the future. I'm on most social medias under the handle Buttermilk Boulevard Pod. Leave me a comment, send me a message, let me know what artists you'd like me to cover in future episodes. Now, for my discography discussions, I'm by no means an expert, despite my musical background. So some of the things that you hear in this podcast are mostly my opinion. If you do not share with the same opinion, if you do not share the same opinions, uh, like I said, that's what those social medias are for. Feel free to reach out, share your opinions. What albums did you like? What albums do you not agree that I liked? And as always, none of the thoughts in this podcast should be reflective of any of the band members, etc., etc. You get the idea. All right. Welcome. 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 If you're new here, if you're coming back, if you've listened to the other big four, this is the final band of the big four American thrash metal bands. As if you could not predict who would be last, the biggest band out of the big four and a constant reminder how metal is not a dying brand Metallica is our final band to cover for this journey that we've been on thus far. If you haven't listened to Megadeth, Anthrax, or Slayer, you might check those out. They're a little bit on the longer side, split into parts, much like this one will be. But part of me is very sad that it's actually coming to an end, that this is the last band that we're going to cover. But a lot of me is very excited to kind of move on from the thrash genre as a whole and kind of venture into some different bands for the future episodes in the future of this podcast. Metallica, uh, to get on my soapbox early, means a lot to me personally. I'm sure it does to everybody. But this has been a band that's always kind of dipped in and out of my life on several occasions. It's been in my life for a very long time. I'm not, I am not the only one who's ever felt this kind of force that Metallica has, but nonetheless, this is a big band for myself. Your loving host and loving of millions across the world. <laughs> so um, we will delve into this final Metallica discography into two parts um, and see if we can't find a reason why this band is as big as they are where their mainstream success came from and which album actually gave them that success. We will talk about the history. We will talk about the drama. And of course, sprinkles of my past and experience with the band overall. There is so, so much more that I could say up top, but I say let's just get into this and get a feel to what's to come, you know? Let's just start out with kind of the basics and the history first, of course. So. My normal disclaimer, except this time it's way more pungent and in your face. You can smell it through the speakers or whatever you're listening to. So I was going to say microphone, but I'm speaking in the microphone. Um, but it's as in your face as it is in prior episodes of the Big Four. I'm going to miss some things. I pick and choose what to do and what to put in these episodes. Metallica is a huge band regarding licks, production, and general history. Some of the things that I, I am aware happened, but chose not to put in. There's some things I didn't realize happened and didn't put in. I typically use Wikipedia, but in regards to Metallica, oh man, their history is exaggerated. Everything has a DVD for Metallica. <laughs> Every album, there's books, there's movies, every, you name it. 
Metallica has it. There's so much history as far as Metallica is concerned. They're a, are a huge band, and as far as marketing is concerned, they are very um, large. I don't know, kind of like Kiss. They have probably their name on a coffin somewhere. <laughs> but uh, I know Wikipedia is not the most reliable source, but it is a little bit more quicker and convenient. And I'm a lazy man. <laughs> so nonetheless, if you do feel that I missed something that should have been included or have some interesting facts or, or corrections to make or simply just want to share your opinions, again, feel free to reach out. Um, that is what social media is for, after all. That out of the way, let's jump into this bitch. Metallica is an American heavy metal band based out of Los Angeles, California. The band formed in 1981 by past and current drummer for the band, Lars Ulrich. Lars put out an advertisement looking for people to jam with. Being a drummer, he wanted to find a guitarist, find a singer, etc., etc. One of the first people to respond to the ad was guitarist and current singer-slash-rhythm player for the band, James Hetfield. He responded to the advertisement, reached out to Lars, and kind of the rest is history from there. But despite the band not being officially formed, Ulrich took this as an opportunity to reach out to Brian Slagle, the founder of Metal Blade Records. He had asked Slagle if he could be included, or if their band could be included on the compilation album Metal Massacre. They didn't even have a name up to this point before he reached out. And despite this, Slagle actually agreed to include them in the upcoming Metal Massacre album number one. Now, Brian Slagle should be a name that's very familiar to fans of this podcast, and should be familiar with it if you're, you know, familiar. I'm going to use that word 18 times in this one fucking sentence. <laughs> but you should be familiar at least with this guy just simply because of some of the past episodes we've discussed with, specifically Slayer, because Slayer was featured on Metal Massacre 3, going on to actually sign with Metal Blade following their inclusion into Metal Massacre 3. Now again, Slagle decided and agreed to include a song in the album, again, despite the fact that Metallica was not a formed band yet. Fucking shot in the dark if I've ever heard one. <laughs> but five months after this meeting with Slagle, again, five months, they're not even a band yet. <laughs> Ulrich... Uh, recruited Hetfield as a singer and a rhythm guitarist. The band was then named Metallica, which was literally like just one of several options for the band. I think he was in a com some sort of communication with a friend of his for like, a I don't know, a magazine or something. And they decided on Metallica versus something else. I can't remember. I put it on the side. I didn't include it in this, but I, yet I'm still talking about it. <laughs> like it's it, Metallica was literally like a draw from a hat type of shit. Like this wasn't something that they just found on an advertisement or something like Megadeth. Um, so the band formed and Ulrich received another response from his advertisement from a one Dave Mustaine. That should sound familiar to everybody. According to Wikipedia, Dave was actually recruited as lead guitarist after Ulrich and Hetfield had seen his quote-unquote expensive equipment. <laughs> Surely he played like a lick or two for them, right? Like they weren't just like, damn, you have money. Welcome to the band. <laughs> In 1982, the band recorded their first original song, Hit the Lights. The song was to be featured on Metal Massacre 1. Again, despite the fact that they just came up with a name, they were featured on a major album and label. Um, so not having a bassist, Hetfield actually played the bass for that song, also playing rhythm guitar and singing, and Ulrich was on the drums. So guitarist Lloyd Grant, where'd he come from? I don't know, but there's literally no mention of this dude up till this point. Anyway, Lloyd played the solo in Hit the Lights. The song went over well overall, 
the band getting some recognition via word of mouth in Los Angeles and probably the Sunset Strip and all that stuff, the rainbow. Uh, also, in 1982, the band recruited their first bassist, Ron McGovney, I believe is how that's said. Um, and then they booked a gig with Saxon, despite only having one song. <laughs> um, so then they actually went on to record their first demo, which is called Power Metal. Now, I will note that at this point, that power metal is actually what James Hetfield had considered the band to be. It wasn't actually until 1984, two years after the demo track, that the term thrash was used in conjunction with the word metal, specifically having to do with anthrax and all that stuff. Also in 1982, these fuckers make quick work of this shit, I'm not kidding. Anyway, in late 1982, Ulrich and Hetfield attended a show at a nightclub called the Whiskey A Go Go. This is a very iconic meeting, of, so to speak. The meeting of the gods, if you will. <laughs> the show featured Cliff Burden, a bassist for the band called Trauma at the time. The two were blown away by the bassist's performance. They had dropped McGovney and threw his bitch ass out, and after some attempts to recruit Burden, he eventually agreed to join the band. In 1983, hey look, a different year for once, the band recorded its first demo with Burden, Megaforce. As a side note here, I actually tried to find some of these demos legally, but then uh, the only place I could really find them is YouTube. I tried to purchase them actually because I'm a big fan of Metallica. Um, so there's an option if you've never actually heard the demos from Metallica, their early stuff before their first studio record. I actually really, really recommend that you check them out. Power Force, uh, sorry, Power Metal and then Mega Force specifically. It's very, very trippy to hear the different versions of like Hit the Lights and stuff. And it's like demo raw state, like very black metal-ish actually when you listen to it for the first time. A lot of the lyrics and riffage are very different. And again, if you're a Metallica fan, I think you'd be kind of interested to check those out. It's pretty cool stuff. I'm not going to talk about them in this episode specifically, but anyway... Skipping ahead here, Metallica was eager to record a full record. They met with another familiar name of the podcast, Jonathan Zazula, founder of Megaforce Records, who offered to pay for Metallica's first record out of pocket after Metal Blade turned down the band. Zazula should be familiar to anyone who checked out the Anthrax discography specifically, having worked with them for their early recordings and actually signing the, bland, the band, bleh, signing the band to Metal Blade. It's all coming together now, isn't it? Just like a big round circle. <laughs> the only catch is that Metallica had to travel to New York in order to record their first studio record. Which, if they hadn't, I probably wouldn't be discussing this band at this point. Um, of course they went to New York. It was right around that time that Dave Mustaine was actually booted from the band. Another familiar point in history that you should be familiar with. Uh, given Again, familiar. I'm going to use that word thousand times <laughs> but uh he was booted for the band for reportedly drug and alcohol abuse it was very aggressive apparently to the band the story behind this drama is a bit unclear um i went into more detail probably in the megadeth discography so go check those out that episode out specifically part one is when i discuss that the most but nonetheless they kicked dave mustaine out for various reasons and then they replaced mustaine the same afternoon, mind you, with current guitarist Kirk Hammett, who was actually the guitarist for Exodus at the time. Uh, and one of the progenerators of that tremolo picking that everyone's famous for as far as metal, that like fast-paced picking style that metal is known for. Um, 
we'll cover Exodus in another day. One of really like one of the groundwork bands for thrash metal as a whole. Uh, Hammett was in California at the time where actually Meg, where Metallica was from. He rounded up some dollar bills and flew all the way to New York just to join the band, literally learning some of those things on the plane, some of the songs on the plane there. Now, there's a lot of moments in Metallica's histories that had they had one slip up, just one person said no or one person just went left instead of right, the whole band would have crumbled apart. Like their history is so it's a perfect mishmash of like random events and then they just, here's a magical band. <laughs> All this said, we've hit the end of this part of the history before we actually get into the first album's release. So before we do that, as always, on the first episodes of these things, let's talk about tone. Let's talk about tone. Let's talk about tone. To start, Metallica has three bass members and a fluctuating bassist member. We'll get into kind of the why and the how within the albums themselves, but with the most current lineup that we have, James Hetfield as the singer and guitarist, Kirk Hammett as the lead guitarist, drummer Lars Ulrich, and the most current bassist, Robert Trujillo. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, besides the bassist position, again, this is the most consistent lineup we've seen from the band thus far, as far as the Big Four is concerned, having three original members stay with the band pretty much throughout, except for the Dave Mustaine stuff, but um, actually makes my job a lot easier. So I think for Tone, we'll start with the guitars, which is really kind of like the headlining factor as far as Metallica is concerned. A lot of focus is put on the guitars because of probably Hetfield specifically, but uh, of course Kirk has his day as well. But um, we'll get into kind of the mix and stuff in the individual album reviews because there's a lot of content as far as that is concerned. But there's generally two trains of thought for Metallica as far as fans are concerned. There's not like an actual name for it, but there's the early years and then there's the mainstream years. <laughs> so rather than later years, it's specifically mainstream. Now, depending on the fan you're talking with, people either hate or love the mainstream stuff. Some of the more modern years, I suppose. But starting with Headfield, he typically plays rhythm for the band and is very well known for his downpick style of playing specifically. He downpicks so much and so fast that most guitarists would cry trying to replicate it like it hurts your hand trying to figure out how to play that fast. Um, I got to wonder if Hetfield can alternate pick at all. Like, I, I don't see many videos of him doing it, but there's some of these songs that I feel you can't really downpick. Like it requires that. And I'm kind of curious if he downpicks or if he can alternate pick. You don't see him do it that often, like I said. But the fact that he is doing these complex riffing patterns while doing all down pick and you know also singing it's really really impressive headfield is known for using a sure super 55 dynamic microphone most people picture like that kind of 60s microphone with that netting on the front the ones that kind of hang from the ceiling except he uses a mic stand but um it's that kind of thing where that like little lining like a cage almost microphone um, at least back in the 60s, those mics cut out a lot as far as the sounds is concerned, like because it like focused on the front rather than the sides and the back. Um, the microphone really isn't as important, important 
the type of microphone he uses really isn't that important to their sound. I'm pretty confident that he could probably use any of the microphones to do his yeah and oh, <laughs> but nonetheless, that's kind of what it's reported that he uses the most often, if nothing else, probably for, you know, the aesthetic or something. I don't know. Um, Equipboard.com is where I got a lot of this information, but as far as I know, James Hetfield uses about 76 guitars throughout his career. It's a fuck ton of guitars. He's used pretty much every guitar you can think of as far as brand is concerned. Gibson, Fender, you name it. He's probably used it at some point. But um, a lot of Metallica fans tend to know him specifically for his Explorer-esque ESP guitars. So Explorer is, I think the name comes from Gibson. But um, an Explorer is basically a V-shaped guitar with like... I don't know, one of the legs of the V cut short and then the hole is filled in. <laughs> so it, so it's basically a broken ass triangle with like a backwards unicorn horn. But I think you would recognize it if you looked it up. Now, now trust me when I say this, but the V guitars and the Explorers are actually very difficult to use if you're not comfortable with it, that you cannot sit down with them. <laughs> I know like with Vs, you're supposed to put it underneath your leg or some shit, but like, let's be honest, as far as Vs and Explorers are concerned, those are purely aesthetic and the people that swear by them have used them all of their lives. So uh, Hetfield has a signature ESPLTD, which is not a V-shaped one, surprisingly. And he also has a signature ESPLTD Snakebite, which is more of the Explorer type of guitar. Not really much else to say. The man likes his ESP guitars. He has a fuck ton of them, and that's the most consistent guitar that I could find. As far as amps are concerned... On the list that I saw on equipboard.com, the one that I saw the most frequent is called the Mesa Boogie. Um, he uses mostly the head, but he does have a cab as well. And he uses that a couple of times. I don't know what he's using as far as recording and stuff. You could probably Google some of that stuff. He had like 20 plus amps and pretty much all of them were different. He had Marshalls, PVs, I don't know. He had everything, but the Mesa Boogie is the one that I saw most. It was like three out of the 20 times, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm not familiar with Mesa brand amps, but from the photos, it does look like it's mostly digital. I can't really tell from the fronts, but um, looked mostly digital with a lot of EQ features. Like you can modify the sound, like the treble, the bass, etc., etc. high ends. Um, again, I'm not familiar, but I'm just doing that based on looks alone. Um, but anyway, moving on to the lead guitar spot, Kirk Hammett is known for his ESPs as well. He uses the LTD models also, just like Hetfield does, but a lot of his guitars are actually decked out with custom finishes that people are known for. Um, specifically, he has like horror themes, like classic horror, like Dracula, the mummy, white zombie, probably has one with a girl half naked on it. I don't know. It's typical. <laughs> but unlike Hetfield, his guitars appear to mostly have that Fender Strat shape, that basic kind of thing with the backwards headstock. Um, he's got 74 guitars as well, which is actually surprising. He has about the same amount as James Hetfield does. But ESP, again, seems to be the most common one. I did see on a quit board that people were questioning a lot of the choices on a quit board for Head, uh, Hammett specifically. So I don't know if they're questionable because they're custom. I, I don't really know, but that's what they are as ESP guitars. <laughs> so as far as amps, he doesn't he has a little bit more variety than Hetfield does using, again, like Marshalls, Fenders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but again, Mesa Boogie is the one I saw the most, uh, rectifier amps specifically. 
It would also behoove me, I'm not going to go into every single one, but it would behoove me to note that he uses a fuck ton of pedal effects. <laughs> I saw 32 on a quitboard, and again, a lot of these people were questioning. There's probably not a good look at what he uses, um, but of course I have to mention the wah-wah pedal. I mean, the man is a fucking wah-wah meme since he's... Since memes have been a thing, Kirk Hammett's Wawa meme existed. <laughs> you know, just popped into existence. He uses the Wah a lot in his solos specifically, especially some of the later, more mainstream stuff. We won't see it a whole lot in the early records, but as far as these albums are concerned, a lot of Wah is being used. Some of the cleaner sections of the albums tend to use a lot more modulated stuff. Uses some delays, some reverb pedals, some flangers, some chorus. I, I don't know, whatever. One of those things. <laughs> it's just one of those modulated, watery sounds that they use in those clean tones, some of the arpeggio stuff. Overall, the guitars tend to match in tone as far as Hetfield and Hammond are concerned. Some of the boost that comes in for the solos, but overall they're pretty, they tend to match in the mix overall, balanced out, I should, guess I should say. Metallica has always had a very combined kind of layered feel. There's a lot of chemistry with their sounds. Um, things tend to bounce off of each other, like the drum lines tend to bounce off of the riffage that they're playing in the verse, etc., etc. The tone is very metal for the bands, but of, of the big four, their tone is probably the most balanced um, kind of like Megadeth's later stuff, like Euthanasia and all that stuff, but it's very balanced kind of tone overall. Everything is pretty similar. There's nothing that seems to be pushed through the mix. Some of the more mainstream albums have some more push in the vocals and the drum sounds, but overall it's it's you know it's pretty balanced. A lot of the guitar tones tend to have high distortion. Some of it's pretty suppressed as far as the noise skates and stuff like that, but the early records, again, are a little bit on the higher end, higher gain sounds, but this is probably related to production and budget and early days and early albums in the 80s. Later albums, again, more mainstream stuff, good balance, expert production, more money, more budget, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Um, the guitar is very precise. It's very intentional throughout Metallica's career. They are considered perfectionists as far as recording process goes, a lot of producers that they've worked with tend to call them perfectionists and kind of hard to work with um we'll get into that i assume but, but as far as i am concerned i was once uh, very inspired by some of their more fast intricate and complex stuff that they have as far as guitar work in their records feels very natural and it's very innovative at the same time it's like a a new blanket that you, you feel like you've had all your life. It's like just hugs you to sleep. But uh, the best part going back to kind of the good for beginners idea is that pretty much all of Metallica's songs are tuned to standard as well. Just leaving on this note. It's perfect. And the fact that they are able to make such metal sounding music with an E, uh, just a standard E standard tuning is a feat to behold. Now the bass portion of their sound is a bit of a point of contention for a lot of people uh, actually the drums are for that matter as well but Metallica unlike Megadeth is a very rhythm based band I'd say a lot of their rhythm parts lead the structure of the songs probably more the rhythm guitar rather than like a rhythm bass or rhythm stuff but a lot of the drum patterns and bass are very simplified for the sake of songwriting 
it's not like Megadeth or Slayer where things have to be intricate and overboard. Metallica is a band, uh, maybe Anthrax as well, that I would say is best for beginning musicians still perfecting their style and form. Megadeth is like the high-end spectrum, like for guitarists specifically. So Metallica is basically like if you were to get a workout trainer or something at a gym for like weightlifting. Well, they would probably focus on your form and your diet before they would actually throw you in the deep end with heavy weights and stuff because they don't want to break your, I don't know, back. <laughs> I'll fucking work out. Um, <laughs> but again, bass is the bass guitar is the hardest part of the sound for me to talk about because Metallica is known for not having a lot of it. Some of the early stuff does, but some of their more mainstream stuff later does not. It's cut out a lot. There's even an entire album where they just simply forgot to add the bass despite there being parts written for it. Some of the music needs it. Most of it does not. Besides the early stuff with Cliff Burton, the bass takes a back seat. Um, for Cliff, it's hard to talk about the bass without also talking about the album, so I'll kind of wait to bring that up later as far as bass tones um, within the albums themselves especially since the bass is the only spot that changes members multiple times throughout Metallica's career. Now, the drummer, Lars Ulrich, he uses a Tama kit for the most part. Zildjian makes up for the cymbals. He does have a Double. bass pedal, but I honestly didn't really hear it that often. And like, especially the early stuff, I think maybe until like the fourth or fifth record, I'd never heard him really use a, ba a double bass pedal all that much. He is a competent drummer. I, he does get a lot of shit. Lars Ulrich gets way too much shit than he deserves. But much like Ringo Starr, I think he it's not a warranted amount of shit. Of the drums in the big four, Metallica are not the most um, pronounced or skillful. Slayer is probably the biggest as far as drums are concerned. Um, that The fucking drummers in Slayer are just impressive, whether it be their replacement ones or their early records. doesn't matter. The drums are impressive. Metallica's drumming tends to be for the music and Slayer tends to be a little bit more showboaty and it's like both sides of the same quarter where Lars is probably more focused on what fits with the song Slayer is a little bit more focused on blasting your eardrums out of your head either way your eardrums <laughs> get it buzz a pun eardrums Slayer eardrums. <laughs> Either way, you get 25 cents. It's it's a quarter, so you're still getting the same amount of money, but it's both sides of the same coin and both works well. The drums are very essential to Metallica's sound overall. Again, very rhythm section kind of lead, but we'll get in a little bit more detail about the drums, just like the bass and kind of within the albums. But let's get into these reviews, shall we? That's it for Tone. So to reiterate some of the background stuff I just already talked about, to which there is a lot, the band headed to New York to record their first studio album with Megaforce Records, an independent record label founded by John Zazula. Recording members for the band at the time was James Hetfield, Kirk Hammett, Cliff Burden, and Lars Ulrich. A few of the songs on the record were songs previously written for the demos that I already mentioned, some were new tracks as well, thrown in, written by Weather Burden, etc., etc. You get it. Uh, Hammett joined the band shortly before recording the new record, again, arriving by plane shortly before they were supposed to record their album. The band met with producer Paul Curcio, I believe that's how it's said. I didn't look it up. I'm bad with pronunciation, bad with names in general, and finished the recording for the first album in two weeks, which is a record time for a new band. 
usually they show up and they're like, don't have anything planned and (laughs) they don't have their parts down. Um, Anyway, Kirk Hammett was told to replicate some of Dave Mustaine's solos that he had already written for some of the demo tracks during the recordings. And being new to the band, that's exactly what he did. He just replicated Dave Mustaine's things Um, that did leave to some disdain from Mustaine, <laughs> uh, because they were quoted as saying Hammett was just going to be like a replacement or just a copy of Mustaine. I'm sure there was some Kirk Hammett original stuff thrown in for good measure. Some of the solos have those classic Kirk Hammett riffs where he just like walks down the board and stuff like that. But let's not get into that. I think for the most part, Dave Mustaine and Kirk Hammett haven't really had too much beef with each other. Um, because it's not Hammett's fault that he was called by Metallica. (laughs) You know, it's that type of thing. Overall, I think they've made up since any of this happened, so we'll just not really get into it. During the recording sessions, Curcio set equipment up to record basically a rock album, being used to that kind of recording. He had no idea how to record a metal band like Metallica, which led to turning down some of the knobs to kind of compensate for the overall noise that was being generated for like heavy drum cymbal and stuff like that. I don't know. This led to a lot of rough recordings, tracks being kind of overly distorted, lacking clarity, sounded basically like noise. The mix had to be remixed by a sound engineer after Zazula listened to the initial recordings for the record. There's a lot of back and forth about the mix for the album in the Wikipedia article. You can read that on your own time. But it led to Metallica actually regretting some of the sound on this recording, being displeased with the overall quality that Curcio had delivered. I don't personally have issues with the mix, but we'll kind of get to that. The first album was initially to be titled Metal Up Your Ass, which would definitely sounds like a hair metal record if I ever heard one. <laughs> but it was supposed to have like a dagger emerging from a toilet bowl or something like that. This was actually changed later, thank God, to suggestion by Zazula um, to what we get as far as the album's title is concerned. Finally, in July of 1983, the debut studio album from Metallica, Kill Em All, was released. The title was actually suggested by Cliff Burden, and the cover art actually features a bloody hammer, which apparently was Cliff Burden's hammer, if I'm understanding the Wikipedia article correct, which he insisted on carrying around with him everywhere, like a concealed handgun license, I guess, concealed hammer license, (laughs) because anytime he got the urge to destroy something, I really cannot think of anything more descriptive of a metal teen from the 80s. Like if somebody was going to make an 80s movie, with a teenager in it, like a slasher film, this would be a, he'd carry around a hammer for some fucking reason. (laughs) But anyway, that's, that's pretty rock and roll to be honest. Well, I guess metal in this case. Um, anyway, I'm really having to pick and choose some of the history here again. So there's so much about this band. It's fucking crazy. There's an entire section on the individual songs, um, which I'll touch on kind of, but honestly, there's a lot of extra kind of miscellaneous info. That's not that important or not that interesting on Wikipedia, so if you're interested, again, Wikipedia is a source for you to consider. The reception for the album Kill Em All received critical acclaim. It was considered one of the fastest and heaviest albums at the time, and in some circles was considered a speed metal song. Remember that the word thrash didn't actually exist upon this album's release. The album cost $15,000 to make, and due to this, the band could only press 500 copies at any given time actually ending up selling 17,000 copies by the end of the year. 
which is pretty unheard of for a brand new band. <laughs> Many comparisons for the album were actually made with bands like Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath. Makes sense. The band was highly influenced by both Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden, just like the other big four. The album received between four out of five stars across the board and charted at number 120 on the Billboard 200. Again, this is a brand new band charting at 120. It's fucking impressive. Um, since its release, it has gone platinum three different times. Of course, I love this album. <laughs> What's not to love? It's so raw sounding. It's gorgeous. Uh, it's one of the best early thrash albums I think there is. It's not my favorite Metallica album, but it is still a phenomenal album as far as thrash is considered. I will say that there are a lot of moments where the mix does fall apart. It is a new one, so I kind of cut it some slack, but specifically the drum cymbals is where I noticed it falling apart. Um, Hit the Lights specifically, which is, again, a different song from the demos. Check out the demos. They're cool. Uh, Hit the Lights was performed at 160 BPM, and I'd say that you can kind of hear the speed in the solo specifically. The solo is admittedly a bit all over the place, but hey, I mean, that's just like my opinion, man. <laughs> all the solos from Kill 'Em All are pentatonic sounding in general, just kind of sticking to the same box. I think Hammett really likes that box that he's in. He does it in later records, too. That doesn't mean the solos are bad. I'd say anything that makes them a little bit more accessible than like Slayer with that like wailing whammy sound that they have in there. Slayer has awful solo. I mean, they're interesting and weird and dark and gritty, but I mean, it's not really anything happening. (laughs) Alternatively, Megadeth's highly complex solo work is probably more intricate and interesting as far as early records are concerned. I don't know, maybe. I think out of the big four, I'm a fan of Megadeth's guitar work probably the most, but our solos at least. But anyway, what I was saying about the cymbals is that every time the cymbal crashes, it kind of drowns out the song. I don't know, many people probably won't even recognize something like this. But specifically, it's like the chorus of Hit the Lights. That's when I noticed it. When uh, Ulrich is doing his cymbal crashes, it tends to drown out just all of the music as a whole. The mix gets a little bit muffled. I have no issues with how the drums are played specifically. Again, I think this is a mix and production issue. Um, Could even be a miking problem, how they mic'd the instruments, but I mean, who really knows? I don't think it ruins the album or anything. It's just kind of like a minor gripe that I have. Another minor gripe that I have is simply the tone of the guitars. It's a little bit too clean for a metal record. <laughs> to Casillo's credit, he was recording a rock album rather than a metal one when they came in, but the gain is very low on these. You can tell they turned down the knobs when they recorded these. I think it's very noticeable at the like tremolo picking at the zeros or whatever, like in Four Horsemen. Uh, it's a bit too stale for my personal taste, just to be honest with you. I won't hold it against the album as a whole. Again, that's kind of a personal preference, but um, and probably a little bit more of a modern preference. But knowing the mixing issues, I'm sure that this is kind of one of the unfortunate results to how it was recorded and produced. I say that specifically, and the reason I can count Kill Em All against it is because the future albums do have the updated guitar tones. So I do think it's a product of this album specifically, rather than that of, like, just my modern tastes. (laughs) So speaking of Four Horsemen, Megadeth fans should be familiar with that song. 
The story here is pretty simple. Um, I kind of went into this in my Megadeth discography, but Mustaine actually wrote the song structure and wanted to kind of use that song as a slap in the face for Metallica. He kind of, he, it was one of those songs, I guess, that he had had in his head forever, wrote in a young age or whatever, and then brought it to Metallica. So when he was kicked out of the band, he took his song and put it on his first album, Killing Is My Business. Um, he changed the title to Mechanics. So Mechanics and Four Horsemen are basically the same song. Mechanics is a much, much faster paced song with a little bit different lyrics. I don't really have a preference. I think they're both pretty good. It's really just like a speed preference. Do you like one to be faster or not? I think the lyrics are better in Four Horsemen, but I do like the speed and uh, intensity of Mechanics, the anger that's behind it. It kind of builds a little bit to... Um, what I guess was intended for the song initially, but they're a little bit too similar for me to judge them. They're both very interesting songs. You should check them out. But anyway, I do like Kill Em All overall. Love or hate Metallica, there's something very, very special about this album. That raw, unfiltered, organic quality for the album is just mesmerizing. It really is. Like You feel like you're in the room with Metallica when they're performing these. This is also one of the best bass-centric albums in metal. Fight me. <laughs> metal has an ongoing love-hate relationships with bass guitar in general. I personally think it's essential to music. When it's not used, we all notice it. And trust me, we'll get to an album where it's very noticeable that it's not existent. <laughs> but this album is great, great for bass. You can really hear Burden's monstrous presence in this album. And he does have a monstrous presence in Metallica. The bass is the structure to these songs, and without it, there's no cornerstone. Like, the building would fall apart. It's really easy to get lost in kind of the guitar and some of that stuff that's going on. That bumping bass in the background, it seriously is like the backbone of this album. It's got a gorgeous, juicy tone as well. It's very audible. You can notice it. It's not one of those songs where it's, like, drowned out in the mix, Um it's like the production fucked up everything except the bass guitar, and it's really glorious on Kill em All. It's, it's at its best. Of course, this album also has an entire bass solo, so again, it's very bass-centric. It's called Anesthesia Pulling Teeth, uh, parentheses Pulling Teeth, I believe is what it, it shows. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it's a bass solo that utilizes tapping. He has a wah-wah pedal, a distortion sound. I can't think of a single other band that uses a bass and a wah-wah combo like that. Um, if there is one, then I haven't heard it. And the story about, about anesthesia is pretty simple. I think that this is the song that Ulrich and, um, Hetfield had been sold on back when they had initially seen Cliff Burton performing for the first time when they inducted him into the band or whatever. Um, they were reportedly blown away by specifically, um, like the wah-wah pedal stuff. Um, it was just something that Burton did while he was on stage, and I guess he recorded it for the album. And I agree, it really is something amazing. You should check out Anesthesia Pulling Teeth. Uh, the song itself is not really anything. Again, it's just basically an instrumentation of uh, Cliff Burton's bass stuff. So Now, I could go track by track here, but I have to say some of the same things about the other songs. They are all pretty damn good, all things considered, with all the mixing issues. Besides the mixing issues, I don't really have too many negatives for this record. I will say it has probably the least replayability compared to some of the others on this episode today, but this is a great start for an album or for a discography as a whole. 
you should really, really be listening to the entire album. But here's some of my favorites. As always, I try to end all my recommendations. Starting with my favorite, Seek and Destroy is a fucking must listen to. <laughs> I mean, that goes without saying. I'm sure a lot of people are like, hell yeah. <laughs> but nobody's going to argue that Seek and Destroy is an amazing song. It's a go-to song for guitarists as well. Especially if you want to pick up your down-picking game, I really recommend Seek and Destroy because it's a it's a good pacing, but it's like Seek and Destroy is like that down-picking. So like if you're weightlifting, which I don't know why I'm making exercise. Usually I make food analogies. Today I'm making exercise ones. But um, like if you're lifting weights, sometimes if you want to increase your gains, quote-unquote, you just like add five pounds and then maybe next week add another five pounds and just up to, to a point that you can handle. Seek and Destroy is that adding five pounds to your down-picking game. Um, it's a great intro kind of like if it still hurts, but it's manageable. <laughs> the whole song, including the solo, is very iconic. It's got a layered guitar intro that really just grabs your attention right off the bat. It's a great song to kind of nail down those single note switches as well. But but when James Hetfield at the beginning goes, all right, and then everybody jumps in with that like bass interlude and stuff. It's so fucking good, bro. So good. Every time I hear I'm I'm becoming a Chad, bruh. <laughs> but every time I hear it, it's like the first time I've ever heard it. It's a great, it's a fresh, and it's an encapsulating song. Seek and Destroy. All the members are excellent in the song. Um, but anyway, moving on. One of the songs I've liked since my youth, which isn't the favorite off the record, is actually No Remorse. I love that intro power chord riff. It's so cool. With the solo as well, so cool. Feels like you really like caught a story in the middle of it, and the pursing is like willing to repeat the story despite you just catching the center of it it's kind of or like maybe a an anime is probably a little bit more a better analogy where like the beginning is just kind of like what's happening and then they build on the beginning and explain the story etc etc within it um i don't know what i'm saying anymore <laughs> but that funky riff after the first verse it's so juicy so good um, it's a song that really shows these band members had great musical chemistry to start which does kind of fall apart later but we'll get into that probably in episode two more jump in the fire and four horsemen are standouts as well uh, four horsemen kind of goes without saying it's one of the best on the record you should definitely check this out i would buy this fucking shit on vinyl i do own it on vinyl actually enjoy yourselves lay back listen to kill them all it's a great album great start to metallica's discography so all right let's get back to the next album after the release of Kill 'Em All, the band went on a promotional tour for the album. The band began writing songs while on the road and performing some of those songs live. Because of the lack of finances, the band would stay with some of the fans that they were at the shows. Uh, eating as few as like one meal per day, I think is what it said, mostly for the duration of the tour. At one point during the tour, the band's equipment was actually stolen and not having enough money to replace that equipment... They were forced to borrow their fellow Thrasher's Anthrax's equipment for the remaining shows. Eventually, in 1984, Metallica re-entered the studio with the new songs and began recording for their next album. They would hire producer Fleming, and I'm going to butcher this last name, Rasmussen, I believe is how it's pronounced, for his work on Rainbow's 1981 album, Difficult to Cure. Fleming would accept the offer after recognizing the potential the band had after listening to Kill 'Em All. During the recording sessions, Fleming would have a drum roadie teach Lars Ulrich the basics of timing, 
and beat duration to perfect some of the drumming in the actual recordings. With a budget of $20,000 and a final expense of $30,000, in July of 1984, Metallica released their second studio album, Ride the Lightning. Ride the Lightning, a title taken from Stephen King's novel The Stand, was again released under Megaforce record label with John Zazula. The album received widespread acclaim upon its release, further building a fan base for the band. The album received critic reviews between 4 out of 5 stars to 5 out of 5 with a few scattered lower ratings, but fuck those, am I right? The album charted at number 48 on the U.S. Billboard 200 charts and has since gone 6 times platinum and 6 million copies sold. Holy shit. Without further ado, here's what I thought about Ride the Lightning. Um, Metallica really kind of reinvents themselves with this album. They kind of do in every album, honestly. It never sounds like the same band. I would say the most consistent they've ever sounded is these three albums we're about to talk about, including Riding the Lightning. Riding the Lightning. (laughs) Um, Confession time. I actually haven't heard Ride the Lightning all the way through since I was probably in middle school or high school or something. Um, the songs come on shuffle quite a bit and I've heard a lot of the music and stuff kind of on the radio and stuff. I've heard the music since then, but it's just been a long time since I just sat down and clicked play and listened to ride the lightning all the way through just in one sitting sitting, if that makes any sense. Um, this album doesn't really feel like the same band that we literally just talked about with Kill 'Em All. <laughs> kind of what goes into like the whole reinventing themselves. They reinvent the wheel kind of with every album. It keeps a lot of their discography pretty fresh, I think, in my, at least in my opinion, having that kind of new sound, but still being very Metallica in essence. You know, the same ingredients, but a different dish. Um, anyway, big surprise, Ride the Lightning is an amazing album. Uh, a lot of credit is given to kind of Cliff Burton on this album. Being the only member of the band that had actually any kind of musical theory background, Cliff Burton taught a lot of the members about melody crafting and how to arrange songs and stuff like that, which is helpful. Um, Not a lot of bands have that kind of experience with music theory or even like even uh, Eddie Van Halen. I just recently learned he didn't even know how to read music. I don't even know how to read music. (laughs) To be fair, you don't need that stuff to make good songs. Um, But it is sometimes nice to have that. Bands like the Eagles do have classical training and it kind of shows in some of their music. Metallica does not, and yet kind of shows in their music that Cliff Burton helped them out with that. As far as my favorite Metallica album is concerned, I've gone back and forth between these four albums um, that we're about to talk about in today's episode. There's five on this one, but one of them is definitely not my favorite. The album hits me in a lot of like nostalgia kind of feels. (laughs) I'm sure it does for a lot of people, honestly. This was the album I had to learn when I was a guitarist. Like as as when I was trying to learn how to guitar, learn how to guitar. <laughs> when I was trying to learn guitar, uh, this was a this was one that was frequently heard in other rooms that other guitarists were trying to learn. Other kids my age and stuff or younger. Um, this one and one of the albums we'll talk about later tended to be the most heard or frequently heard albums. It was a very important album for me as a learning guitarist, so I am pretty biased towards this record. It is one of my favorite albums by Metallica, if not one of the bigger fours. Um, So here's me trying to be as unbiased as I can be, tried to listen to it with as much objectivity as I could. The funny thing is, 
for the life of me, I cannot remember the first time I actually heard the album. <laughs> um, again, it's been a long time since I heard it, but my guess is that the first time I actually heard Metallica, uh, anything from Ride the Lightning was probably from my actual music instructor. <laughs> I have a feeling that he was like, let's learn this one. <laughs> All I know is that the first Metallica song I ever heard was Fade to Black, just ever, just in general, like um not even even before like inner sandman and some of their most popular hits the first metallica song i ever listened to was fade to black and it blew my childhood brain <laughs> um fade to black we'll get kind of on this little uh tangent here but fade to black is a very boring song at the start let's all just kind of be honest here the clean intro is not very metal it does it does capture your attention and it's nice it's a nice little flowing intro but really what makes that song is like halfway through when that bridge to outro part comes in, when that distorted guitar kicks into gear. Again, I love Fade to Black beginning to end, but when that electric guitar kicks in, that is the highlight of the entire song. It really is like an orgasm to your ear when that electric guitar comes in. It's a fucking treat, you snack of a song. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's also got one of the greatest guitar solos by Kirk Hammett, one of the most memorable ones. You'll probably, you're probably humming it right now if you've heard the song, but it's one of those that you hum along to it or you try to sing it for some reason. <laughs> it's a fucking powerful song. It's a powerful solo. And then they decide to follow up Fade to Black with Trapped Under Ice, which is like a kick to the face when you just took a nap <laughs> or somebody throwing water on you, I guess. Um, it's like Burden took out his hammer and smashed your foot in the middle of like a nice stress-free meditation. Uh, again, I'm, I'm doing my best not to go track by track, but it is a little bit hard. Um, I do have to cover the elephant in the room for whom the bell tolls. Man, this song is great, isn't it? <laughs> Played at every concert before any band comes on, period. At every sporting event, you name it. Whom the Bell Tolls always plays at every one of those live venues. It's one of the go-to Metallica songs as far as, uh, at least, uh, as far as I know. But um, there are a few uh, songs that are probably get a little bit more radio or airplay than some others, like Fade to Black, but... Uh, for Whom the Bell Tolls, that is one that everyone knows as soon as it comes on. If you're waiting for Slayer to hit the stage, they will play this song, I promise you. What is good about For Whom the Bell Tolls is this is a textbook example of letting a song breathe. The intro is fucking gorgeous. They just let the instrumentation breathe before Hetfield ever comes in with any kind of vocals. And say what you want about Lars, but For Whom the Bell Tolls would be complete garbage without the drumming that he's doing in that song. It is absolutely phenomenal kind of drumming. It goes perfect with it. Yes, it is pretty simple, but it is clearly one of the best metal intros of all time. Bana, 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 fight me. <laughs> when the guitar lick drops and that palm muted glory, it's just fucking great. I love that. Doodly, 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 doodly. It, it's like that... Um, there's a lick in Paradise City that I had to learn because it's actually kind of complicated, even though it doesn't sound that way. But it's uh, it, it's like a struggle to play for some reason. Like it's easy, but it's still 
kind of throws you off as a guitarist. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's like string switching or something like not, not string skipping, I don't know, whatever. Fuck, it's an arpeggio of some kind. The dual guitars is beautiful. The lyrics are amazing. Take a look to the sky just before you die. It's the last time you will. Drum explosion, explosion in my pants. <laughs> Metallica did something so interesting with metal with this album. They really furthered the genre. A lot of people quote this album as being one of their influences. As far as being a musician is concerned, it's a heavy influence for a lot of people. I'm not sure that after this album that they would really be considered a quote-unquote thrash band. There, it's It's up for debate. Really, they do have a lot of thrashy moments, but For Whom the Bell Tolls is a great example of a metal song that is endlessly good, but it's not the normal fast-paced thrashiness that you kind of expect from these type of things like Slayer. It's got a cool groove, it's got a simple guitar part, but it's arranged and structured so good that it doesn't fucking matter. Um, another good song that I highly recommend from Ride the Lightning, if you're not familiar with it, is Creeping Death. Creeping Death was probably not a song that I enjoyed in my youth, but has slowly, very slowly, has become one of my favorite tracks of all time. There's really no denying how that intro riff, how fucking cool that is. I know I'm cussing a lot today, but <laughs> the way the band structures the drums, the bass, that rhythm section, hell, even the lyrics around that main riff is amazing. It's so cool. Um, what really sells the song, I think, is probably the lyrics. Anyone who knows the Bible or has heard even the story of Moses already knows what this song is about, Creeping Death. You can probably guess just by me saying Moses what Creeping Death is about. Um, but it's basically about the story of the plague and that invisible, quote-unquote, death coming for firstborn children, which I guess Metallica saw that story and said, instead of being religious, they were like, hey, that's pretty dark and fucking metal, and they were right, and it works great. <laughs> it's a great song. The title track is a great song as well for Ride the Lightning. I played the shit out of that song when I was younger. Again, I'm cussing a lot today. I don't know. I need to stop. But I'm going to be a little bit of a hypocrite here because I know despite my misgivings about instrumental tracks and their lack of vocals and that I have this complaint about. I don't know. It's probably a made up complaint, but I'm going to be a little bit of a hypocrite and say that Call of Cthulhu is one of the most amazing instrumental songs that you'll ever hear. Um, it's a song based on the tentacle beast from HB Lovecraft's horror stories. I know there's that Lovecrafting like HBO max thing. So everyone should be kind of familiar with who Cthulhu is, but um, I guess they spelled it different for the song. If Cthulhu was to pick a song to, or Cthulhu <laughs> was to pick a song, I don't know what I'm saying, uh, was to pick a song to rise out of the Earth's core to, it would be Call of Cthulhu by Metallica. Um, there's actually a fun fact about that song. Dave Mustaine actually received partial writing credits as it was one of the early riffs that he created. My guess is the intro, knowing Megadeth, it, that seems like the, or the, bah, 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 I don't know, fuck, I don't know just what I'm saying. Um, but that's just my simple guess. I, I don't know which part he actually has credit for writing. Um, the highlight of the song is that intro melody, though, to be honest, but that bass, the bass in Call of Cthulhu is so good. It's just so, it's Cliff Burton, one of Cliff Burton's best songs, at least my opinion. Um, I told you we'd be talking about Cliff a lot. I mean, we have to. That man is early Metallica. There's like this a subtlety to Call of Cthulhu that has 
Um, I know it seems like I'm pronouncing that wrong. I feel like I am, <laughs> but uh, I know that there's like a lot of like weird noises that Cliff is doing in the background that probably people don't even realize, but like there's like a wah bass and he's doing these weird kind of wavy noises. It really sounds like something coming from a pit, like it draws an image to your mind um, just going into it without any lyrics. And it's just a it's a great, it's a great instrumental. Again, I'm being a little bit of a hypocrite, but I love, I love that one specifically. Anyway, I think I've talked Ride the Lightning to Death. Uh, as if you can't tell, it's a fucking amazing. It gets me very excited. Uh, you should really buy the vinyl and Ride the Lightning. It's one of the best metal, just albums in general. <laughs> like I don't really know what else to say. It is one of the best albums um, that Metallica has ever put out. At least uh, again, in my opinion. But um, goes without saying. Let's move on from here. We have clearly the most popular one that I think everyone's waiting for me to talk about. So as previously mentioned about the history, Ride the Lightning and Kill Em All were crazy successful albums for Metallica. Those are their first two albums also. <laughs> Fucking crazy. The release of Ride the Lightning caught the attention of Representative Michael Alago with Elektra Records. He actually signed the band for an eight-album deal following the release of Ride the Lightning. Following that signing to Electra, like following the signing to Electra Records, they re-released Ride the Lightning and began a promotional tour, having a little bit more finances to do so at larger venues and festivals and such like that. Uh, the band actually parted ways with John Zazula and hired Cliff Bernstein and Peter Minch. Um, as I don't know, I think they were they're like a management firm or something called. Q Prime, I believe. I don't have it in my notes, but um, I'm not sure what their role is, to be honest. They don't really get mentioned again other than this part. But their company, Q Prime, is known for um, helping or managing or being agents for Def Leppard, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, they did the Jimmy Page's solo career and, of course, Metallica. Anyway, the band was gaining a lot of attention very rapidly, opening to like 70 plus K crowds. The band was very motivated to kind of begin work on a new album following this uh, extreme success. Hetfield and Ulrich actually began songwriting process for those new songs for the next album while they were on tour. This would actually be the first album not to feature any old material and not feature any songwriting credits from ex-guitarist Dave Mustaine, who at this point had a very successful career with Megadeth. But Mustaine did later claim credit for at least one of the songs off this new record, but never actually received final written credit. This drama is very irritating. Um, I cannot be the only one that thinks this. I mean, chill out, fellas. But anyway, the band continued to perfect their craft, Lars Ulrich taking additional drum lessons as well as uh, Kirk Hammett working with Joe Satriani, another famous guitarist, to actually learn how to record his guitar more efficiently. The band once again hired Fleming, despite initially wanting to hire Rush bassist Getty Lee in the role of production, but they did decide to go with Fleming after Getty. I guess, I guess Getty Lee turned it down, I'm not really sure. Anyway, the band actually at this point started not only to gain notoriety for their music, but also for their excessive drinking. However, it is said that this album, they sobered up and tried to hone and perfect their craft for this next record, really focusing in on making a good album. Then, in 1986, the seminal third studio album for Metallica, Master of Puppets, blessed the world. 
Master of Puppets received widespread acclaim. It's no big surprise. You've heard of it already. Many critics then and since calling it a masterpiece. <laughs> Even outside of the thrash metal genre, it is considered often a masterpiece. As far as Metallica and metal is concerned, it's since been called one of the most influential and best metal albums to ever be released by both fans and music professionals since its release. Many bands, since its release, I'm going to keep saying that, have cited the album as being a major influence, if not on their sound, but also influencing them to start a career in music in general and starting bands and just a lot of just in general influencing. <laughs> so um, the album received five out of five stars across the board, with the worst review I saw being nine out of ten, surprisingly. Um, Master of Puppets opened to number 29 on the Billboard 200. This, remember, this is their third studio album, staying there for over 72 weeks and has gone six times platinum in the U.S., which is a bit lower than I expected, but my guess is that number's changed since the Wikipedia article's been last updated. I don't know. Master of Puppets reportedly sold over 300,000 copies in the first three weeks. That's just in the U.S. and more than 500,000 copies in the first year, with virtually no radio play or any music videos to promote the album. Furthermore, the album was listed at number two for the top 100 metal albums of all time by Rolling Stone magazine and was preserved at the Library of Congress being deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant to the world. So fuck, this is about to be a long episode. <laughs> um, we're, we're at the beast. I mean, we're being honest here. We know Master Puppets is a phenomenal record. There's no doubting that or disputing that anyone there's not enough words in the english language to really describe the glory that is master of puppets by metallica the album is perfect and it's the obvious obvious winner as far as i'm concerned i might do the ranking of all four big four at some point in time i don't know but sorry other three as far as i'm concerned master of puppets is the best record that out of all four of them master of puppets wins every single time it's too good. It's There are no negatives. Master Puppets is a 10 out of 10 and one of the best metal albums of all time. Everything in this record goes very perfectly. The flow of the record, the way they end and begin and ending with starting with Battery is the only way that this album could have started. The way the songs are laid out, the different tracks as far as how they flow, it's just so well done. It's an onion of multiple parts that shouldn't work, but it just works so well. It's an onion, but that onion is made out of your favorite food. Whatever that might be, that onion is made out of it. <laughs> so I know that's a really weird image to conjure up, especially if your favorite food's like a candy, but <laughs> enough grandstanding. We all know this album is good. So Battery, to this day, I think is probably one of the hardest Metallica songs to play. This is my personal opinion, of course. You can probably play it slow, but getting it up to the speed and the timing that they play it is pretty difficult, at least, again, to me. It's the downpicking, to be honest. I'm not great at it. I'm an alternative picker. But um, the title track is a close second, I would say, as far as Master Puppets is concerned. But I guarantee you, almost all guitarists, if they haven't learned Master Puppets, have at least tried to or learned a lot of it but going back to battery battery starts with this solemn almost western i don't know maybe zorro like feel it really builds like this theme or this mood for a song you already have a picture in your head just by the intro 
and it really does lead the listener along a journey. Um, like the witch in that movie, the witch leads the boy into the hut. Um, the movie witch leads the boy to the hut and it's looking all sexy. And it turns out that that sexy witch is actually a demon. <laughs> well, battery is pretty similar. It leads you in that solemn, glorious intro. It's looking all sexy. And then it punches you in the mouth. <laughs> um, the lyrics are glorious. It's a beautiful, catchy song. As far as I'm concerned, pounding out aggression, turning to obsession, cannot kill the battery. To clarify, as far as the lyrics are concerned, I think uh, Hetfield either he's really obsessed with energy batteries um he's either singing about violence or some have interpreted it as like an artillery artillery battery but to me that just kind of adds to the multi-layered quality you can kind of whatever it you want it to be battery can mean that i guess on multiple levels whether it's about abuse violence in general or artillery batteries for some reason or energizer bunny um, <laughs> anyway uh, that's also one of the first songs i believe that's one of the first songs that we hear lars use that double bass pedal that i mentioned a little bit earlier in the tone um and it adds like this kind of uncomfortable edgy feel to the song it's just it's great it, it is an uncomfortable kind of tinch song and i it's very it, it's meant to be again it's kind of taking you on a journey throughout this album throughout the album but throughout the song for the title track master of puppets i really recommend that some of you look up some music theory stuff on youtube i'm not going to be able to do justice to the title track master of puppets because master of puppets is like uh, I don't know, I guess an accidental masterpiece. It, it To me, it feels like a love child for Cliff Burton because there's a lot of music theory behind Master of Puppets. And again, I don't know if it's accidental or if uh, a lot of it has to do with some of that background that I mentioned that Burton had. I don't know how trained Metallica was when they wrote it. I don't know who's responsible for it, but we all know Master of Puppets is a phenomenal song. It's one of the most layered songs, and it really does take you a lot of interesting and different places. It shouldn't work, but it does. It kind of reminds me of, uh, if anyone's read it, the Sandman graphic novels. Everyone should read it. They're phenomenal. Even if you're not a comic book reader, the Sandman comics are some of the best stuff you can read as far as comics are concerned. Um, you really just never know where the graphic novel is going to take you, and I think Master Puppets is a good kind of analogy for that where you never really know where it's going to take you next. Every section of the song, of which they're like four-ish, give or take, are very unique and they're very cool. They still fit with the flow of the song. It doesn't. It's not like a departure when it changes pace or key. It's a song that all musicians wish that they had written, but none of them have been lucky enough to do so because only Metallica could do it. Everything from the lyrics, end of passion play, crumbling away, I'm your source of self-destruction, to the themes of being under control by someone else, the gang lyrics, the chorus, it's beautifully performed vocal part by Headfield, not to mention that man's downpicking is a fucking beast. <laughs> again, there's the cussing again, but this song is like a cinnamon challenge for downstrokers. <laughs> um, sounds oddly sexual, but sure. <laughs> Uh, it's a difficult song for downstroke picking, which, which is why I'll never be able to really nail it down. Alternative picking all day, baby. But that song has some awesome melodic centerpiece that really reminds me of kind of like Pantera's Cemetery at the Gates. I kind of wonder if Cemetery Gates was inspired by Master Puppets or I don't really know. 
Anyway, I'm talking really fast, but it's beautiful. It makes you feel, which is unusual for 2020. Hey, everybody, remember feelings? Tell me about your feelings. Uh, <laughs> the song as a whole is around 220 beats per minute, but there's a lot of change there. It's got some weird time signatures going on. Hell, I don't know what it is. It changes. That's all I know. The song changes a lot. It's a multi-layered track. There's a lot going on. The guitar in the song is great. The drums are great. The power chord usage is awesome. The intro is hard as fuck <laughs> to this day. I actually still struggle with those the speed of the power chord changes, like in the verse. Um, it's a challenge of a song, but it's a welcomed one, and it's fun as shit. And anytime I listen to it, it's always a joy. I could keep going, but I do need to move on to kind of prevent this podcast from being way too long for you. But hell, I've still got two albums left. I'm not done. Just like a workout, it's okay to pause and come back, and then once you've recover recovered, you can just continue your workout. Get some water, eat a post-workout burrito, eat a five-pound bag of gummy bears, whatever suits your fancy. Um, the next song, the thing that should not be, is actually not my favorite song on the album. I admit that if I were to give this album a 9 out of 10 versus 10 out of 10, it would be because the thing that should not be. It's not a bad track. It's a great kind of break in the album it still works in the flow of things but i do think it um it's just not my it doesn't vibe with me so i won't count it against the album it's really just a personal thing um there is a segment about two minutes in where the key changes and they drop the tuning of the main riff and it's just it's unbelievable it's so cool it's so cool that honestly i almost want the entire song to be that drop down but at the same time, I don't want to lose that little taste that they give you, you know, that tease of something awesome. I feel like if the whole song was that kind of drop tuning suddenly, the entire song probably wouldn't be as impactful or that moment wouldn't be as impactful. Um, kind of butchered it. I think I know you you you, you, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying you you know uh, it's <laughs> I guess the only reason it doesn't really vibe with me though is just because it's a little bit repetitive but at the same time it's still a song that's like if an opening band played it uh, it would be better than the main act <laughs> you know or something like uh, when I saw Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson while I like both of them uh, when I saw them live Rob Zombie put on the much better show than Marilyn Manson. Marilyn, Marilyn Manson is really good again, but he was just exhausted. And I think like the next concert following Dallas, he had like hurt himself or something. I don't know. He, he wasn't in the best shape, I guess, when I saw him, but still like Marilyn Manson, no disrespect or anything. But um, the next song, Welcome Home Sanitarium, is a great tune. I fucking love it. If you have any friends, if you are a guitarist and you have any friends that are guitarists, y'all should learn this one because that intro riffage, especially the rhythm part, it's so good to jam with people. My brother-in-law and I do that a lot. We have, I, I've, we've probably done that since I met my brother-in-law. We've jammed to this melody. Um, not only that, but it's just got a gorgeous melody. That intro solo by Kirk Hammett is so cool. The lyrics really sell the song. Welcome to where time stands still. No one leaves and no one will. <laughs> it's great. It's fucking great stuff, Headfield. Um, it's a haunting track as well, I believe. I believe from the title and the lyrics, it's about like mental institutions. Uh, I, I could be wrong or something, but some of these songs say one thing and then mean another. It's not that uncommon in music. But So skipping a few tracks here, another wonderful, fucking amazing, incredible, making me look like a damn hypocrite of an instrumental song is Orion. 
Orion is amazing. As much as I like Call of Cthulhu, Orion is a better instrumental uh, between the two. The best part of the song outside of that melody and the fun, catchy riffage is that bass. That bass is so good. And this is this is the burden theme song, if I was going to give him one. Um, that tone, that burden plays, that bass is the way it sounds is sometimes better than the way the guitar sounds. Like it's so juicy. It's the song is amazing. It is on the long side, but I think it makes up for the length with like really fun instrumentation by the band. Moving to the final song, much like Creeping Death and Ride the Lightning, um, has slowly become one of my favorite songs over the year, Damage Incorporated. It is an amazing tune. I, 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 I know it's not everybody's favorite, but I, I really like dig it, and I don't know why. <laughs> that solemn kind of intro really like slows down the pacing of the album quite a bit. It's a very excellent way to end an album, and it's a very well-rounded song overall. It's probably a good representation of what you get in the album as a whole, that one or Battery, but Damage Inc. incorporates pretty much everything we've seen from the album. Uh, Master of Puppets is good, of course, as well, but it does suffer from being a little bit overplayed, Master of Puppets. I mean, I'm not going to shit on Master of Puppets as a masterpiece, but <laughs> it doesn't really hurt the product, like I said. It's just probably the perception that it's overplayed. Damage Inc. does not have that problem because it's not overplayed. <laughs> of all the songs on Master of Puppets, I think Damage Incorporated is the mosh song, quote unquote. It makes you want to smash shit. It's a great song for like a treadmill or like a weightlifting session. The speed and the entire song is just utterly insane to the maximum. I, I bet it's the, the fastest one. <laughs> Can't talk, but I bet it's the fastest song, but I'm not 100% sure. When the song cuts and breaks into that like interlude at the three minute mark, that riff is such gold. <laughs> the way it transitioned is, is just fucking mean. <laughs> I do think that the song could go without probably the solo, but it's a bit of a product of its time. Again, a lot of songs back then had to have a solo in it for some reason, but, but I don't think that kills the vibe of the song, but it does kind of take you out of it a little bit. Um, luckily the song does come back to that main riff and just brutalizes your ear holes. Um, it's a great song. Might be one of my favorite ones off of Master of the Puppets, but that's really hard to say. This album has so, so many good ones. I have it framed on my wall because Master of Puppets is just, it's a phenomenal record as far as I'm concerned. It's one of the best records I've ever heard, period. Um, so you really should listen to it. You should buy it. But I still have two albums to talk about, so... Let me know how much you like Master of Puppets. If you don't, you fuck off. <laughs> but anyway, two more albums left. Let's get into this bitch and then we'll get this shit out of here. With this next album, we've got a bit of a sad moment in history to discuss, unfortunately. Um, this was, and for many people, a very hard moment in metal history. So I'll try to be as gentle as possible. But um, in just music history in general, this is a pretty sad moment. Um, we've discussed it a few times already in some of the other Big Four episodes, but it kind of directly affects Metallica the most out of the Big Four. Following the extremely successful Master of the Puppets album, the band went on a promotional tour for the album, as one does. The band was touring and opening for Ozzy Osbourne on a headlining tour. The tour was called Damage Incorporated Tour. 
During this tour on September 27th of 1986, during the European leg of the tour, the band drew cards to determine which bunk they'd be sleeping in that evening. Cliff Burton won the draw and chose to sleep in Kirk Hammond's bunk that evening. In Dorop, Sweden, I'm probably saying that wrong, around sunrise, the driver of the tour bus lost control of the vehicle and overturned the vehicle several times. Lars Ulrich, Kirk Hammett, and James Hetfield all survived the crash with minor scrapes, cuts, and bruises. Bassist Cliff Burton, on the other hand, was pinned underneath the bus and did not survive the crash. This was a big moment and, of course, a very tragic loss for the band as well as their fans. The band was understandably very angry and distraught after the accident, leading to doubts about the future of the band as a whole. Following the passing, Anthrax actually dedicated their album Among the Living to Cliff Burden. Metal Church did a similar thing. They dedicated their album The Dark to him as well. Mustaine dedicated the song My Darkest Hour from the 1988 Megadeth album So Far, So Good, and So What?, and also being reasonably and admittedly shaken by the loss as well, knowing Burden personally at one point in time. Cliff Burden's body was cremated. His ashes were scattered at the Maxwell Ranch. At the ceremony, Orion was played. In October of 2006, a memorial stone was unveiled in Sweden near the scene of the crash, which features the lyrics, "'Cannot the kingdom of salvation take me home?' It's from Metallica's song To Live Is To Die, dedicated to their friend and bandmate on this next album we're about to talk about. Now, Burden was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2009, along with the other members of Metallica, including his replacement bassist that we'll be talking about in a moment. The award was accepted by Cliff Burden's father and the other members of the band. In the 2009 biography To Live Is To Die, The Life and Death of Metallica's Cliff Burden, written by Joel McIver, was released. It goes without saying, but Cliff Burden's legacy is never-ending despite his death. He is one of the greatest bassists in metal history, maybe even in rock and pop and all of the above, but he helped create an entire genre that still to this day inspires millions of people. Rest in peace, Cliff Burden. Following the loss, Metallica approached Cliff Burton's family regarding the band's future and whether or not they should continue as a band following the passing. The band felt it a disservice to Cliff to end their career just right there, and they actually received a blessing from Burton's family to continue the band without him. Metallica then began their search for a new bassist to replace the godly, monstrous bassist that was Cliff Burton. And it certainly was not an easy task. I cannot imagine what they would mentally and emotionally were going through during this entire process. Some of the people to audition were bassists Greg Christian of Testament, the honorary fifth member to the Big Four, depending on who you ask, Les Claypool, famous of Primus, and I'm surprised that they didn't choose him. That man is also a beast at the base, but also Dave Ellefson of Megadeth was also at the auditioning process. I don't know what Dave had to say about that. I'm kind of surprised there's not anything on Wikipedia about it. <laughs> but um, they ended up choosing the last person who was to audition for the position, Jason Newstead. Now, Jason Newstead has since said, since he was hired for the job in a 2015 interview, that he had gotten a hold of the set list for their tour that they were on with Ozzy Osbourne, the Damage Incorporated tour, 
prior to Cliff Burton's passing. He had spent time, learned all of the songs, and when he actually arrived to the audition, he handed Lars Ulrich the set list and told him that he knew all of the songs, which actually shocked Lars Ulrich as well as the rest of the band. Metallica involved Cliff Burton's parents in the decision-making process, who also agreed that Jason Newstead is the one. After breaking the news to Newstead, which is a hard sentence for me to say apparently, Burton's mother actually hugged Jason and told him that you are the one. Please be safe. Two years after Burton's passing, the band re-entered the studio for their next album, and without much bullshit, they hired Fleming again to produce the album, just like he had on the last two. Fleming was initially not available to to other obligations that he had as a producer. They actually hired Mike Clank, who had helped produce the Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction, my personal favorite band and album. And just so you know, if I ever cover Guns N' Roses on this podcast, just know it'll be my last episode, one of my favorite bands. But nonetheless, Fleming later did return to help with the uh, production, but and uh, Mike Clank was fired for um, not just for filming coming back, but there was also some issues regarding like arrangements, the sounds of the guitar and such like that. During the recording process, which appears to have been much of a headache for a lot of it, the bass was mostly inaudible at actually the instruction of James Hetfield and Ulrich. Now there's a lot of interviews, there's a lot of questions about that, and the band is often asked what happened to the bass and it's still to this day a little bit unclear what actually happened versus what is being told there are some interviews where james headfield and lars ulrich initially tuned down the bass recordings for their own individual recordings and intended it to be back up into the mix but actually forgot to increase it i find that a little bit hard to believe given that headfield and ulrich don't actually have the control over the production and mixing process they might have a request to turn it down so they can hear it but usually the production staff has that responsibility but who knows Uh, There's also articles where it's said that the bass is actually in there, but it's copying the rhythm guitar so much that it's kind of indistinguishable from the rhythm guitar. It's all over the place. I don't know. I'll come back to this in a moment, I promise, when we actually get to the review. But long story short, in 1988, the band released their fourth studio album and Justice for All. The album was released again under Electra Records. The album released to mostly positive reviews and a few average scores thrown in for good measure. The album opened at the number six spot, their highest of the albums we've discussed thus far, and stayed at the number six for 83 weeks, which is fucking phenomenal. The album has gone eight times platinum since its release and is often considered one of the best metal albums of the 80s, along with the previous release, Master Puppets. The song One was nominated for a Grammy and was the favorite to win Best Hard Rock Performance, but here's a little fun fact. The person that actually ended up winning the Grammy, Jethro Toll, was told not to show up because most likely that Grammy was going to Metallica. Metallica was even up to the point where they were standing just off stage ready to get the reward. Well, I guess spoilers where this is concerned because um, they did not win. It actually appears in multiple top 10 Grammy upsets And uh, I cannot agree more that one should have probably won that nomination. One should have won that nomination. (laughs) Uh, Let's just get kind of the obvious out of the way, starting my review here. Many fans of Metallica know that this album is uh, somehow missing bass, one way or the other. Some say it's there again. Some It's not not important in the scheme of things. It doesn't sound like it's in there, so I'm just going to consider it not to be in there. 
There's a lot of people that want to forgive Metallica for this as far as being apologetic for this uh, mistake, quote unquote. While that might have been a mistake, I have a few questions to consider. One, forgetting to include an entire instrument. Are you really telling me that out of the hours, days, weeks spent on this album, not a single person realized the bass isn't in there? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear when you listen to the album that it's missing something. <laughs> but anyway, I do have to dock off a point, unfortunately, because I do feel like that lack of bass is extremely noticeable if you know there isn't one in there. Um, I will give the album some credit. It does sound pretty full without the need for a bass guitar. That guitar tone is very bass heavy, and I can see where they're going with as far as the rhythm section being very bassy. Um, and the drums actually make up for a lot of that missing space that the rhythm part for the bass would usually encompass. Um, it's a heart with a hole in it, essentially. <laughs> um, while it still functions, the heart works perfectly fine. There's a hole in it. While I do know that Metallica is a very guitar-focused band, but that bass is very essential to music in general, and I do think that Metallica tone, as far as what we've seen, especially with Burden stuff, uh, that bass is very essential up to this point for the Metallica sound. All of the members are very essential for that Metallica sound overall, but with three albums down the pipe, with an excellent, amazing bass parts and bass solos and stuff, it is a obviously missing feature on this album. Um, there are YouTube videos and such where people have done like, uh, I don't know, reviews or where they edit a bass into the things. And I, I think it'd be smart for at least, or at least a good marketing decision for Metallica to just re-release this album with bass parts. I'm not like, again, I'm not complaining too much. I'll get to actually how I feel about it. I'm just addressing the elephant in the room. Imagine one's intro with like a bass guitar outlining those intro chords that the guitar is playing, that arpeggio part in the beginning. It would be almost close to perfect, I think, if it had a bass in it. But anyway, the biggest, most obvious thing, again, had to address it. Um, but let's get to the rest of this album, shall we? Now, this album, despite everything I just said, is amazing. It's a phenomenal record. It's a great album. It's one of those albums that I feel like people are always like, yeah, Master of Puppets is my favorite, but then they kind of pause when they consider justice. <laughs> it's one of those albums that like, when people think about it, they often are like, you know what? Actually, maybe Injustice for All is my favorite. <laughs> and I think that's because while it's not as intricate and music theory and all that bullshit, it's not that arranged like Master of Puppets was. It's still well arranged and it's still got good flow and it's got some of the coolest, catchiest songs that Metallica has done. In all honesty, this album has amazing music overall. Just really nice, nice music. Uh, Master of Puppets is a masterpiece, of course, and music theories will be talking about that album for decades. Ride the Lightning is oftentimes people's first introduction to Metallica, or at least it was mine and some of the guitarists I knew when I was still learning. Justice came later for a lot of people and for me specifically, but it's an album that still to this day hits very hard. It might be actually my favorite personally, if for nothing else but the great, amazing songs on this record. It's an album I really struggle to describe why it's good. Like, the riffs are great. It's a little bit closer to Ride the Lightning rather than Master of Puppets. It almost feels like a successor to Ride the Lightning. Um, and the drums are good. It's very raw-sounding. It's very visceral. And yet, I don't think it was supposed to be, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Like, I, I really do feel like the mix screwed up somewhere along the line. But... That as a result, 
we get something very cool because of that screw up, if that makes any sense. Like accidental, like you've seen those videos on YouTube where there's like an accidental, I don't know, they just fuck it around on the guitar and accidentally wrote the biggest song of their career. I think Guns N' Roses did that too with like Sweet Child of Mine. What am I getting at? Um, anyway, but I do think while it's a victim of overmixing and production, I do think that that mixing actually kind of benefits this record, despite the fact that it doesn't have that bass guitar. I do like the rhythm guitar. I think the guitar in this album is phenomenal. It's some of the best that Metallica has done. Uh, Shortest Straw is one of my favorite Metallica songs ever made. It's one of their heaviest, I think, personally. Um, if you listen to the if you listen to the drums in that song, it hits so fucking hard. It's like a bottle smashed over your head, you know? You know what that feels like, right? I assume everyone does. <laughs> but uh, the kick drum stuff that Lars is doing, it's it's great. It's very underrated, I feel, as Lars is a drummer in the early days. was just phenomenal. He's a really good drummer early on. Um, that guitar tone is amazing. I really like it. It's like a, it's like a crunch bar. <laughs> the guitar tone uh, which is a weird way to describe a tone for a guitar crunchy but it's got crunch like on the high end but it's also got smooth bass undertones so it's like a crunch bar like chocolatey and crunch i don't know what i'm saying uh, it's got a great solo by kirk hammett as well that weird kind of harmonic whammy thing it's just glorious and short as straw very delicious the album has some great headfield vocals as well. He sounds very angry. He sounds a bit grittier. And I think some of that emotion that they've probably been feeling since Burton's passing is really coming through through the album. Um, now, I would not want to fuck with 1988 Gems Headfield by <laughs> after hearing this album. Um, but anyway, one of the best songs on the album goes without saying it's Blackened. It's one of the best Metallica songs, honestly. And for some reason, I've always associated it with Battery. I get them confused. <laughs> I think it's because they both start with a B and they're both they're both similar kind of like arrangement styles. It's like slow to fast and back and forth. And um, But again, it's also one of their probably more difficult songs for me personally to play. It's, it's the downstrokes. Again, I'm not great at those, <laughs> but uh, everyone should look up black and live specifically watch Hetfield. Um, if you can find a 1988 version, if you watch that guy's hand, that man is a beast when it comes to downstroke picking. Um, nobody's hands should actually move like that. I got to wonder if he's ever had like wrist surgery or anything like hurt his wrist from all that picking, but uh, which happens a lot for guitarists, you may not know, but usually it's the left hand. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he's also singing during all of that high-speed picking and intricate like guitar work. He's easily, if he isn't the best, he's one of the best rhythm guitarists of all time. He's right up there with Malcolm Young of ACDC and Paul Stanley of Kiss. Really, seriously, just one of the best rhythm guitarists ever in music. But there's that moment in Blackened that I really, really enjoy when the key changes. It's like three minute mark, I believe, around that time where you get that like pumping guitar riff and drum part. And Headfield has those like echoing vocal lines. You know which one I'm talking about. But after that first verse in that section, they bring back those vocals and flip the echoes, which is I've never heard that before. It's phenomenal. And I mean, I've never really... I guess paid attention to it prior to now. I've never sat down and analyzed this album. Usually I just enjoy the music. This time I get to analyze it. And it's really interesting kind of way that they form those vocals. Like I, I'm curious how they did that. 
like how they flipped the lines and yet still made it forwards without him singing backwards. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Um, in other words, like he's like saying opposition, but the solo, the echo part comes before his actual part of the song, unless he's actually physically repeating those and they're just turning up the volume possible. Um, anyway, it's a great song, Blacken. And there's another record. Now there's another song on this record that really highlights kind of Kirk Hammett's skills outside of Black End and uh, Shortest Straw. And that song is one. I mean, of course I'm going to fucking talk about one. <laughs> it's basically this album's like fade to black, but just like a little bit longer. Really the highlight of one is that ending, much like it was for fade to black. People often listen to one just to get to the ending. It's like... um the whole song is good, don't get me wrong. The arpeggio is very memorable. The lyrics are very nice and soft and solemn, you know. And and again, it's very similar to that fade to black thing where it's just that arpeggio intro and, and even in the same position on the guitar. But that ending is what sells one. Another big departure I'd say probably from fade to black to one is that uh, one has a lot more build, like it has a lot better transitioning and building to that inevitable moment at the end that everyone's looking forward to. It's got some of the best something's coming vibes. Like I, sometimes I feel like somebody's watching me, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing um, where, you know, it's coming, you feel it in your chest, you're tense, you got goosebumps, you know, it, goosebumps, <laughs> goosebumps, uh, you know, it's building to it. And then they gradually kind of increase in volume. They increase the speed a little bit. And just in general, it kind of leads you to the end of it, um, which is really well done. It's very, it's very organic. And by the time it actually comes, it's very orgasmic. <laughs> um, it provides you with those like Insta goosebumps again, or, or goosebunks apparently. Um, <laughs> I'm reminded of the uh, actual like, uh, there's a lot of songs that do that kind of similar kind of start very quiet and arpeggio clean guitars and with a chorus backing. Uh, Freebird, for instance, Leonard Skinner, same kind of idea. Uh, black Keys, uh, Little Black Submarines, I want to say, or you could just use Fade to Black as an example. Again, a very similar kind of concept. Slow arpeggio with a high impact, high gain, heavy outro. Um Except one does it the best, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I don't know, Freebird is a close second, but, but I think one, as far as building to something, um, the best part is, even though you've heard it, you will still have the same amount of anticipation and tension, even if it's your first time or it's the 11th time that you've heard the song. Because again, once you know it's there, once you know it's coming, it has the same kind of anticipation. And to be honest, I don't know why one works. Like, I know that portion works, the way it builds and transitions to that awesome part. But really, that ending, it's just like a E-string breakdown, basically, for a metal band. It's just... Blah, blah, blah. I, I, it's like one of those irritatingly simple, why didn't I think of that moments, <laughs> you know? The rest of the song makes sense, you know, the way they arrange their music and stuff, but that, like, ending is not that difficult. Um, but the Headfield, I think it's probably everything else outside of the guitar, like the drumming, the double drum, uh, double kick drum, and then the E string breakdown, along with, like, Headfield's lyrics and vocal performance, they're absolutely golden it's amazing i really cannot imagine this song with any different lyrics he really just got found the perfect words to say when it comes to one 
it's like a chef that perfected a dish basically to the point that giving it any different ingredients would probably ruin the dish. So you got to get the recipe right every time. Getting back to Kirk Hammett, kind of what we started this conversation with. Um, this is probably Kirk Hammett's debatably Kirk Hammett's best guitar solo. I don't think many people would argue with that. It's a very memorable. You already know what's coming. It's the tapping intro, that sweet little arpeggio sweeping stuff. The way he moves down the board in this is probably some of the most intricate work I've seen from Kirk Hammett. Um, and again, it's a personal opinion, but I think this is probably his best. Um, again, you could argue that some of the other ones are really good, but no, this is a really good one for me personally. Um, but once it ends, like the solo ends, what they do in one really just like brings it back into that. Like you, you're enjoying it. The solo is amazing. And then it ends. You're a bit sad, <laughs> like slightly, but then they come in with that dual guitar and Hetfield joins the battle, <laughs> you know? Um, it's like a dog that if you stop petting and then you like, it like gets sad for a minute and then you go back to petting it. <laughs> Fucking amazing song, man. One is amazing. Actually the whole album and justice for all is amazing. I don't only cover about three songs, but really any of those songs on this album and Justice for All are completely worth your time. The entire album is worth a purchase. Buy it on Spotify, whatever, you know, I guess you don't buy it on Spotify. Um, download it on Spotify, you know the gist. Um, anyway, nothing really much else to say about Injustice for All. This is another great Metallica album. And really, it's just hindered by that lack of bass. But I mean, honestly, even if you consider the lack of bass, it's still like a nine out of 10, <laughs> you know. Um, but nonetheless, you should go check out Justice for All. We're ending that one. Let's move on. We're already close to two hours here. So the final album for today. Following the massive success of And Justice for All, Metallica, of course, went on a promotional tour for the album. I already mentioned the whole Grammy debacle, so no need to bring that up again. But there's a surprising lack of info for the next album leading up to it. So I guess I'm kind of skipping around. It's just as far as Wikipedia is concerned, there's not a whole lot there. In 1990, the band re-entered the studio to compose and record their next album. For many of the previous albums, Headfield and Ulrich composed most of the songs. Um, this time the band actually kind of worked together using a collaborative effort to compose most of the record. Um, members like Kirk Hammett had to say, and Jason Newstead also had some say, but instead of using Fleming again, Metallica hired producer Bob Rock, who worked with Motley Crue's 1989 album, Dr. Feelgood. They liked his work on that. So they hired him. He agreed and they were off to the races. Now, unfortunately, the band did not really get along with rock. However, this is a pretty bumpy recording session as far as this next album is concerned. And there's a lot of back and forth since it came out as far as what happened in the actual recording process. But the best I can guess is that the overall experience seemed to be pretty disappointing for all the members of the band, as well as rock himself. Um, going on as far as to say that he would never work with the band ever again, despite actually, um, working with him for three more albums, <laughs> but nonetheless, a lot of the budding heads seem to be around like Headfield asking for better lyrics or, or asking Headfield for better lyrics and then wanting to incorporate some like layered harmonized vocals. He also had this idea of having the band record their parts together rather than separately. 
uh, for more of a cohesive effort. I know Metallica is notoriously a perfectionist when it comes to their records as well. Um, so you really just have to find the right producer that works with them, I guess. I mean, that's probably the same for all bands, but um, nonetheless, they beat, they butt heads. Let's move on. Not that important right this second. In 1991, Metallica released their fifth studio album, the self-titled Metallica, commonly known as the Black Album. The album opened to widespread acclaim more than any other album to date. Critics tended to rate the album highly, while some of the more metal oriented critics, I guess, tended to have it a little bit lower or lesser of a rating. <laughs> um, the album actually reached number one on the Billboard Top 200 charts. Number one, mind you, this is the only the fifth studio album by this band. Number one on the Billboard Top 200 charts, skyrocketing the band into mainstream success. In 1992, the album actually won a Grammy for the best metal performance and was number 88 on Colin Larkin's Top 1000 Albums of all time. Since its release, the album has sold more than 31 million copies, 16 million in the U.S. alone, with 16 times platinum. But I believe that since last time Wikipedia was updated, it's probably more than that. On some places I've seen it's up to 30 now times platinum. It's fucking insane. That's not a number. <laughs> That's uh, There's only 30 other albums that have like sold more or close to the same amount as Metallica's Black Album. Some of those bands are like, you know, top selling albums of all times, like the Eagles, Celine Dion, Guns N' Roses, ACDC, Michael Jackson, uh, Fleetwood Mac and more. Some of those we've actually discussed on this podcast. Um, and I think it's been since Elton John that on this podcast, we've discussed an album as successful as the Black Album is and was. Just like with just like with Justice for All, this album has some things we need to consider kind of right off the bat as far as my review is concerned. Mainly the change of sound is what people tend to uh, argue about the most. If you listen to And Justice For All and then you go right into the Black Album, you might actually be pretty surprised that this is the same band. It, it really does sound like a new band, and I know I mentioned earlier that they do fluctuate their sound quite a bit throughout their discography, but this is just another example of that. It's still very Metallica. You know it's Metallica. You can tell right away, and a lot of that has to do with Hetfield's vocals. Um, but the first thing I noticed actually was the vocals changing. Hetfield tended to be a pretty decent vocal performance up to this point. I don't think he's too bad. I don't think he's not a traditional singer. He's not Adele or anything. He's got a gritty, metal, growly, distorted voice. Um, and in prior albums, he had that that little bit of taste of youth in his performance, probably forcing a voice at some times. Maybe he didn't have as much uh, teachings. I don't really know. Um, like most angry thrash metal bands, he has vocals tended to sit well with the other instruments. They mixed a lot together. You know, everything seemed to be pretty balanced, like they recorded in a warehouse. I don't know. What am I saying? Um, <laughs> um, in other words, the vocals in some of the Metallica albums we've talked about up to this point felt very visceral. They felt very real, very organic at times. And it might that might be the best way to describe it. Um, another word that comes to mind is raw, um, not WWE raw, but <laughs> but uh, but more like like or, or like I said, raw, organic, visceral. You, the same words you use. One of those, pick one. I don't fucking know. It's <laughs> not a word search. Now the Black Album does kind of change those vocals. However, the vocals in the Black Album are cleaner. They're a little bit less distorted. 
I don't think he's forcing his voice as much anymore. He's still got some grit. It's still iconically James Hadfield, but it does sound a little bit more produced of a vocal performance. And don't get me wrong, I like it. I think it works well overall in this album. Um, and in some albums in the future, I think it is works well as well, but it is a different thing that I just noticed that I wanted to mention. It does sit pretty high up at front as well. Again, it's a pretty mainstream modern mix. The vocals are on the front. Everybody else gets to take a back seat. Sometimes the drums are pushed forward. The vocals are very layered. Oftentimes there's a backing track or a backing vocal part and some of the choruses. Basically, again, it's a mainstream way to produce vocals and that's what we get in the Black Album. That raw organic feel that some of the other Metallica albums have have all but disappeared. So I get why there's a lot of disdain for this record and how it pushed them into that mainstream. A lot of metalheads like shake their head at this album or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, the second biggest thing that I noticed outside of the vocals, which is why this album probably doesn't rank as high um, as the last four would have. I don't know where I would rank them, but... As far as the drums are concerned, up to this point, we know Lars is, we know that Lars's drumming is pretty decent. I think he's been pretty good for most of the time. He does have his moments where he's doing fills and all that stuff. He he's having more fun. It sounds like in the earlier records, but there's moments where he really shines in like Master of Puppets and uh, Ride the Lightning and stuff. This record is awful as far as drumming is concerned. I don't know if awful is the right word. Maybe boring is the better word. It's just so fucking boring. Um, it's some it's some of the most basic, dry, metronome-sounding bullshit I've ever heard in music as far as the drums are concerned. They sound great. Tonality, the bass is booming. It's big. It sounds great. Oh, it's amazing, the production. But... It's the most simplistic drums we've ever heard from Metallica. Now, I don't think the drums are bad, like as far as in context of the album, but I do think that they're boring and they're uninteresting, and it really takes away from some of that interesting arrangement style that Metallica had in past records. This is very mainstream record. You're, you're getting a mainstream album here. It's a beat that people can dance to, and almost every song has the same beat. They're all sad, but true. <laughs> you know, it's all this album is sad, but true. <laughs> you know, uh, the song, I, I think that songs like sad, but true. They need those drums because it provides that punch for the riffage and the vocals. Enter the Sandman, same kind of thing. You need that style of drumming. You need that punch. But it is very boring. <laughs> And after, after re-listening to this record in a little bit more of an analytical mindset, I do actually understand why this record does get some hate from some of the metal community. Um, and it is kind of a beginner album as far as musicians are concerned. And I could probably learn this entire record on drums, guitar, bass, or anything in the amount of time it took me to Rick listen to the album. <laughs> you know, if the album's 30 minutes, it might take me 40 minutes to learn it. It's really not that compelling as far as instrumentation goes. It's pretty boring. Like I said, it's very lackluster. Now I'm talking a lot of shit and a lot of metal fans do actually hate on this album for the quote unquote killing the Metallica sound or selling out or however you want to put it. 
this is an album that often is said in like VH1's, you know, history things or whatever the shows that we do. Is VH1 still exist? Does anyone watch daytime television? <laughs> but it's often that one that's cited as having like their little sisters are listening to it in the other room while their brother is wearing the fucking t-shirt. Um, it really threw off fans upon its release. And I don't think that's really changed to too much probably made it feel a little bit less like a niche and like Metallica's underground feel. And it really just opened Metallica to the rest of the world. Like, like Metallica took it upon themselves with this album to introduce the world to metal, which I agree. It's very mainstream sounding. It's a basic bitch of an instrumentation. Um, it's a little bit overproduced. There's a lot of fingers on this record. You can tell it's greasy. However, however, Metalheads also have a very severe problem with wanting people to come into their genre and then being mad when people show up. <laughs> they're not very welcoming to newcomers. It, it's always like, hey, yeah, I've listened to this band. And they're like, oh, you listen to metal? Oh, you listen to metal? That's not metal. <laughs> no, fuck off, dude. But music is supposed to be enjoyed. It doesn't really matter what you fucking listen to. I don't care who does enjoy it, who doesn't. I love Metallica's Black Album. I'll say it all there. Now I'm giving a lot of shit to the Black Album early on because I wanted to get it out of the way. I love the Black Album. As simple as it is, as overproduced as it is, mainstream as it is, I don't care if it's quote unquote Metallica selling out. I don't care because it's a great album. It is a gateway drug into metal. <laughs> you know, if there was somebody looking to listen to the metal or try out the metal genre, you can't give them cannibal corpse or cattle decapitation or i don't know infant annihilator just saying those words probably makes people not want to listen to those bands <laughs> you really need to give them something softer to build them up into some of the heavier stuff i mean i had to i i didn't start immediately with bands like behemoth um although i love behemoth now i probably wouldn't have if you gave me that instead of i don't know ghosts meloria <laughs> you know, introduce them to Iron Maiden, introduce them to Judas Priest, Megadeth's Euthanasia, Countdown to Extinction. Yes, those are mainstream albums, but they're also good gateway drugs. <laughs> if you throw them in the deep end, they will drown. They don't know how to swim yet, so you got to hold them up a little bit. <laughs> anyway, this is a very accessible beginner record for Metallica. And I was one of those beginners at some point. I'm pretty sure in my youth, I learned every single one of these songs because they're good with everything. They're, they're the perfect songs for beginners. And this, this sounds degrading for the record. I'll get to it a little bit. But everything from like pentatonic solos, the riffs and the verses, how everything is a little bit slower pacing, learning how to play along with the timing, the rhythm playing, the pattern changes, drumming, bass, you name it. This album is perfect for beginners, and that is really good because it's introducing people to a style of playing that they may not be used to. Um, and it did for me, too, as well. When I was still learning, a lot of these songs tended to be the things people go to. I mean, just think about Enter the Sandman. That arpeggio entering that arpeggio entrance to that E chord and stuff. While it may not be hard to, you know, veteran guitarists anymore, you probably know it like the back of your hand. You probably you could probably play it right now if you haven't played it in years. <laughs> but to a beginner, that some of that stuff's difficult. Like it hurts your fingers to play that intro to 
and or the Sandman, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent. Probably come back, come come back, James, come back. Uh, moving on, <laughs> we're already getting a little bit long on this episode. I know, but I love Metallica, and everybody does. But I love this album, the Black Album, also for its music, despite its flaws and the clear change of sound. It's a good album, man. The songs are really good. They're very catchy. They're very exciting to hear. Um, tell me that you do not get excited for hearing the intro, enter the Sandman intro. There's no way that you don't. And that interlude part, hush little baby, don't say a word. And then they build to that headfield. Boo! Main riff comes in. It's fucking glorious. That's fucking delicious. <laughs> I don't care what you say. That is hardcore. <laughs> you cannot tell me that you wouldn't jam mouth to sad but true on any day of the week. That song is on every single try not to headbang challenge for a reason. It's so groovy. This album has so much groove. It's very catchy. It's very nice. I'm going to repeat these things. Metallica excesses at rhythm and it's very underutilized. It's not talked about a lot as far as Metallica's is concerned. And I think what they did with the Black Album was exaggerate what Metallica is good at. They're good at arrangements, they're good at good songs, and they're good at drums and bass. And you may not notice that because the drums are mm, quote-unquote mediocre. But <laughs> but another thing I notice about this album, another thing I love about this album, is just James Hetfield in general. He has a very demanding presence in this record, and he's well-known for a reason, and this is a good album. And besides sharing a first name with the man, <laughs> I have lyrical props for this man. Like, this album has great lyrical flow. Him and Dave Mustaine should probably have a contest for who writes the best lyrics. The crap rolls out your mouth again. Haven't changed your brain still gelatin. Little whispers circles around your head. Why don't you worry about yourself instead? Holier Than Thou is one of the best songs on this album, Fight Me. <laughs> but but the guitar in that song specifically in this one, I know it's simplistic, but those riffs are so good. Some of the most memorable riffs that not only Metallica has, but metal in general. Like just playing the intro to Sad But True. So I don't, I guess for Black Album, I love it. It's a great one. I gave it a lot of shit early on, but I do love the record. I think it's great. And I would recommend it to anybody because it is accessible. I can recommend it genuinely to anybody. I don't really have a recommendation list for you on this one because you've probably heard all the songs off this. <laughs> it's probably not unusual. If you haven't heard Metallica's self-titled album, also known as the Black Album, um, you really need to go check it out. Like this is an album that I feel like everybody needs to hear at some point in their life. That's one and master of puppets. It's one of those albums that you're like, where the fuck have you been? <laughs> you know, um, what do you mean? You haven't listened to rumors by Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> where have you been? Uh, it's one of those. It's one of the biggest music albums of all time, not just for metal, just in general. It's the album that gets the most radio play as well. So it's really, I'm surprised if anybody has not even walked into a guitar center and some kid is trying their best at the Nothing Else Matters intro or Enter the Sandman, something like that. It's one of those. It's everywhere. <laughs> like it's it's a song where it's, yes, it's overplayed, quote unquote. But And the fact that it's simplistic, I know why that might be one of my quote unquote issues but there are bands that have made careers off of simplified songwriting. As long as the songs are good, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> does it? Um, the songs are catchy. They're headbang worthy. You might shed a tear at Unforgiven's beautiful, clean guitar. You might 
Punch a Hole in the Wall during Through the Never, which is probably my favorite song on the record. And honestly, it's just a great album overall. And with that, I think this is probably the first podcast episode in Buttermilk Boulevard that has every single album, all five of the records we talked about, all of them were good. I don't know if it's the first one. I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't think I keep score, but all five of the albums we've talked about are really worth your time and you really should buy them all. (laughs) I own all of them on vinyl. (laughs) I have owned all five of these albums since I was probably in middle school. So this is one, this is one band that I really didn't have to listen to all that much to tell you about the records because I've listened to them a lot. Uh, Metallica is one of the best, if not the best metal bands that's ever existed for mainly the five albums that we've talked about today. Now we'll get to part two. There are some albums that are a little bit touchy a little bit later, but they rarely do any wrong when it comes to songwriting because regardless of your opinions, and yes, they are commercial success. I don't really care, honestly, if they're commercially successful or not. I want my bands to be commercially successful so I can keep listening to them. (laughs) If they can't afford to be successful, they're not going to make music. (laughs) But yes, Metallica is a metal band that is most likely to release a Christmas album, but they are just as likely to release a banging metal album that you can't put down. So you won't hear any complaints from me. I love Metallica. I always have, always will. Now, nonetheless, that is the end of this first episode of Metallica. That is part one for you. It's long enough with part one, isn't it? (laughs) So imagine part two. Um, We're going to leave the episode here. Part two is coming soon, I promise. But uh, right now I'm in the midst of listening to the third out of the five records we're going to touch base on next week. Some of them a little rough, spoilers alert. But um, I think you kind of expect... You can probably anticipate my opinions (laughs) on some of the records next time. But nonetheless, thank you all for listening to Buttermilk Boulevard. Again, I have been James. If you enjoyed the podcast, follow it for future episodes. Or don't. It's completely up to you, man. You you make your own choices. You are an adult or a child. I don't know. (laughs) I cuss a lot, so hopefully you're not a child. Um... But with that, of course, because it's the month of October, my favorite month of the year, we are going to have some spooky stuff at the end of this episode, so stick around. It's really just like an instrumental thing I do in about five minutes. Nothing special. (laughs) But if you enjoy it, stick around, I guess. If not, well, see you next time. Nonetheless, thank you all for the support. Thank you all for joining us here on Buttermilk Boulevard. Keep an eye out for part two of the Metallica discography and don't forget to check out the other parts of the big four podcast review or whatever this is. (laughs) Um, Nonetheless, that's it, folks. You have a great week. Stay safe out there. And until next time, rock on.
dangerous? Where should we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond? Children of the night, what music they make. 